welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. Welcome back to Clean Tech Talks. I'm your host, Michael Bernard. And today my guest is going to be a very interesting conversation. Andy Tang, Vice President of Energy Storage and Optimization for Vartzilla, a global technology shipping and energy company. Welcome, Andy. Thank you, Michael. I'm pleased to be here. Um, so uh, I always like to start these things with, you know, helping my guests, helping my you know audience figure out who the heck you are. So you've got a, a, a weird, interesting background, a bit like mine in that sense, you did not start out in energy. So tell us, you know, a bit about some of your career path that led you to this place and where you, when you made that transition, you know, cause you've obviously made a transition to a decarbonizing economy business, which is a great thing to have done. It has uh, certainly been a winding road and, and definitely not a, a linear path, as you say, similar to, uh, to yourself. So I started my career in 1990 in financing, in the finance industry, actually. So I was looking at financing and mergers and acquisitions of tech and telecom companies And over the course of doing that, I I became increasingly focused on infrastructure, infrastructure companies, and how best to optimize and utilize the fixed costs to build those networks. Now, that was mostly on the telecom side. And this was actually before, I'm going to date myself as to how old I am, but before the Apple iPhone was even invented, right? The state of the art phone back then was uh, was the Nokia brick phone and or the Motorola flip. Um, and and that's where we were in the telecom space. But, you know, 15 years in on doing that, I started to look for something more. There was kind of a missing fulfillment, and I wanted to do something more than just be an advisor and and really, you know, advise people on what to do and watch from the sidelines on whether or not it was successful and move on to the the next transaction. So this was 2005. And we had just also come off of a period, an amazing period that started with the Telecom Act of 1996, where there was unbelievable innovation in, in, in telecommunications. Uh, the whole wireless revolution happened in this time frame. The whole internet really happened. Uh, the growth of the internet really happened in this time frame. And as I said, the iPhone hadn't even come to existence yet. But the interesting thing is the iPhone couldn't be what the iPhone is if the telecom networks underneath hadn't been developed. So they were a necessary precursor to to where we see ourselves today. So how do I get from there to energy? Well, I really had two, what I would call bridge roles. So the first bridge role was leaving telecom and actually uh, joining Intel, uh, where they were trying to work on a a competitor to 4G uh, cellular technologies. And that got me into, into much more into wireless, uh, you know, wireless networking and optimization of, of wireless networks. Uh, and then my second bridge was in 2007 when I jumped to Pacific Gas and Electric Company, the electric utility serving uh, Northern California. And that's where I got my jump into energy. Now, PG&E hired me because of my wireless telecom experience because they were embarking on a $2 billion project to deploy a smart meter network. And they had been using it with very talented and capable, but, but uh, internal, homegrown internal people. And so they really looked for someone who had a little bit of, of wireless and business modeling expertise from the, uh, from the outside world. So that, that's really how I made my bridge 
firmly into energy. And then once at PG&E, I did a lot of activities at the intersection of energy and technology. Yeah, yeah briefly, I, um, I was actually engaged with IBM on a smart metering effort for hydro Quebec mm-hmm. in a similar time period and you know other smart grid type of efforts on the distribution side. Uh, at very one point and another. It was kind of part of my bridge, but it was internal to an organization as opposed to shifting to a new organization. So, mm. you know. Still counts them. Completely different area of expertise and needing to develop new skills and new thought new thought processes. Yeah, but, uh, I, I couldn't, you know, as I said a few times, I couldn't convince my former employer to take the global transition seriously enough because their business model and who they sold to and their structural, internal structure doesn't wouldn't allow create it. a critical yeah doesn't critical yeah, wouldn't mass allow around it. it so yep it's you, unfortunate you, but yeah you, you you would spend too much time apologizing to your existing paying customers and chasing a business that doesn't exist yet yeah but that will be bigger yes right so it's a so it's, like, it it's like the it's like We're the not. innovator's dilemma it really is one of my favorite books i cite it regularly i'm uh uh, certainly citing it right now around electrifying aviation disruption going on through there, which we won't get into because it's off topic for this. <laughs> but now you're, um, but after the PG&E smart metering thing, you transitioned more fully. I did after the smart. So some of the activities that I did at PG&E, in addition to smart metering, which were more traditional energy, were really things around how do you, okay, now that you, now that you can actually understand how electricity is being used and at what times of the day is it being used? How can you optimize the usage of that electricity? So some of the early, early precursors to PG&E's EV plans on what they're trying to do with with, uh, electric vehicle enablement actually started in in my office. I worked on something called the Smart Energy Web, and I had this concept of the smart garage back in 2009. And conceptually, it was, was, and this is the bridge between or the commonality between telecom and, and energy is that telecom talks about the busy hour. And the, bit, the busy hour is, is the hour of the day where the most phone calls happen. And you basically have to design a network. To, you basically make a determination of, of how many people you want to support on your network. Right. And if, if the, uh, the first caller over that determination tries to make a call, they get the all circuits are busy now. Please try your call later. Or they get the fast busy that, that they do now in cellular networks. But you design to the busy hour. Electricity is the exact same way. We design distribution and, and, and transmission to support the, 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 the load at the highest point, typically 5 to 7 p.m. And so then the challenge is you have all these other hours where the network is not being used. And and the magic that happened in telecom was they discovered that if you have a fixed asset, filling the network at those other hours costs you next to nothing. And you Mm -hmm. can build customer loyalty, you can get other services, you can find other revenue, right? And so I looked at that and I drew the parallel to energy and I said, this is really exciting because we're we're about to embark Mm -hmm. on a very similar thing on the energy side. Right now, the missing piece, the key missing piece, energy storage. You couldn't store electricity cost effectively. What I used to like to say is, you can't TiVo energy. No, it's it's not a digital asset. It's a, no. it's a real thing. It's a real thing that ha- that happens just in time. But but the answer now is with with the cost curves and where they've gone, you absolutely can TiVo energy. 
So energy yeah. storage really is a game changer for the way we operate electric grids. Yeah, two two things. Um, first, do you know um, uh, Johannes Rittershausen? Rittershausen. He was at PG&E or Mariko McDonough-Meyer because they both had uh, PG&E efforts around energy storage in the 2000s. They wrote a white paper. He's CEO of Convergent Energy Plus Power now, which does storage. And she's chief strategist for them. They're all back on the East Coast. But I was just wondering if you, you know, it seems like an, a potential for you to intersect. But, you know, as this, obviously not, as because of the expression on your face that the people in the podcast can't see. Yeah. Um, but not uh, familiar. I mean, Johanna sounds familiar. Last name sounds familiar as well. But, but then we, so we may have crossed paths. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Yeah, well, it's California, right? A lot of things were being seen in California that were from the future, you know. And so, you know, you you were part of that. It was interesting. Uh, second thing, though, I spent a lot of time on grid storage, as you know, and I, I I would somewhat disagree about the fact that we can't TiVo energy because we have enormous amount of capacity of pumped hydro storage globally, and an enormous amount being built right now globally, mostly in China, of course, where they actually get infrastructure in a way that we don't really in North America anymore. But it's not a TiVo thing. It's a massive scale billion dollar infrastructure program. It's a different kind of beast. So anyway, but you have this insight about TiVoing energy and likely demand management was in there as well, because it's something we can do with energy that we can't really do with telco. It's hard to convince people not to make the phone call or transfer the data at the point in their business cycle if they need it. But it's relatively easy to sign a contract with someone to reduce demand from major demand assets. Right? You know, so we do that. In so, so we used to do that in telco, and the way we used to do that oh. was that was that calls were more expensive at certain hours of the day. So oh. it was really differentiated pricing. Now that has gone away. Because the overall marketing on cellular networks is, you know, move to a one price fits all. But we mm -hmm. did used to do dynamic pricing on telco networks. Oh, well, yeah, it's um, certainly a, you know, there's, uh, you probably know this better than I do, but how much dark fiber is there still out there from the fiber boom? And then, you know, oh, that's a really good question. I haven't tracked that in, in, in at least 10 years. But you're yeah. right. There, there was that dark fiber boom that actually I was working on as a, as a finance mm -hmm. professional, and there was so much overcapacity. But my gut would tell me that we are we have used that all up, and they're building more at this point. Well, yeah, it is interesting because you know the, the, a lot of those fibers were put in before the massive multiplexing capability with the new, you know, fiber laser router type of stuff. You know, so we can just take the same fiber and put massively more stuff through it. Which, again, is a differentiator between telco and electricity. Mm -hmm. It's hard. It's much. You can't just do some digital magic and put a lot more energy through the same wires, whereas you can put a lot more data through the same fiber. It's yeah, an interesting difference. It is a very interesting difference. Yeah, it's the, the technology innovation kind of doesn't help you with the throughput. Or the the you know the, some of those physical we have more physical limitations I guess is maybe one way I would look at it or state yeah, it. Um, you actually were in California at the time, so it's really interesting. One of the things I look at is the Silicon Valley attempt to disrupt energy in the same way they disrupted communications and print and media. And I always, as I looked at that, because I was part of the dot com boom myself in a minor way, 
I worked for a, a Silicon Valley company for a couple of years before it got acquired and made a good exit for people who weren't me. <laughs> but the differentiator, the a lot of the people in Silicon Valley didn't get the fundamental physicality of the infrastructure and that the analogies didn't hold. There are analogies that did hold, but uh, Peter Thiel and his acolytes just missed it in so many different ways in terms of how they thought that energy could be as disrupted as easily. So it's just, and, and they missed the long-term innovators dilemma disruption of wind and solar that had started in the seventies and eighties and slowly built up because it takes decades. So anyway, so that was uh, PG&E in the, uh, in the, Late so I, so I, I would agree. I would agree with that. I would wholeheartedly agree with that assessment that there were some items that they missed. I would also add to your list of things they missed was the what what was then called in the two thousand five two thousand nine timeframe the the dumb slow utility that it's going to mm-hmm. get disintermediated, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that they missed that any solution that we have here by necessity has to involve the utility as a partner. Yeah. And I think what a lot of those early stage, that, that first generation of clean tech investment in the early 2000s, really up until 2014, I would, I would argue. Uh, but that mm-hmm. kind of first wave of clean tech really missed that concept. And, and so the business models took longer to develop. And as they took longer to develop, you know, VCs lost patience and, and they, moved on, they moved on elsewhere. Now, fortunately, there's a second generation of, of clean tech VCs that, that have now emerged as well. You know, with more patient capital, more understanding, and I think the market has has evolved to the point where these these things can now work. Yeah, I, I am paying a lot of attention to Octopus to see how it actually succeeds or fails, and in certain places where the market. But you know, even there, it's in so many markets where you just don't see it because it's got a white labeled version of its product running for utilities in those markets. Mm-hmm. You know, it's got its disintermediation vault approach, but it's also got. It is an intermediation, an intermediation product for utilities. Yeah, uh, yeah. It, it, that's you know the that's actually another interesting point of analogy is the original monopoly structure of telecoms versus the natural monopoly structure of utilities. You know, and you know that that you probably have an interesting insight on that because you've lived both of those. I would say, as an initial start to trigger you, to trigger you. There is more of a case for a natural monopoly for distribution wires and payment than any other part of a utility. But you know, how would you compare and contrast uh, telco versus utility uh, monopoly structures? Yeah, telco had one innovation that occurred that that allowed us to get out of the regulated monopoly, uh, the natural monopoly, so to speak, mm-hmm. and that was wireless technologies. So once you had wireless telco for the last mile enabled, then you suddenly had, tr- uh, had the ability to have true competition. Mm-hmm. And, 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 so, and, and the, the cost to deploy a wireless network is a fraction of the cost to deploy a fixed line network mm-hmm. to actually dig up streets or, or, or put wire across poles and then, and then the last mile into people's homes uh, is a very, very costly endeavor, right? And, and so wireless allowed us to kind of, uh, or allowed the industry to create competitors to the old line monopolies that, that, uh, that, that could compete on, on, on service and value and value proposition, mm-hmm. like a true competition. We don't have wireless power in, in, in our sector. And so I do agree with you that basically 
it is the distribution is a natural monopoly. And it, it's, it's hard to see how someone can go and, and, and take over or, or not take over, but, but build a parallel distribution network with any sort of uh, commercial metrics that, that, that you know, keep them in business and, and, and make, make sense. You see sometimes local communities trying to take over the networks of IOUs and wanting to buy, buy back network from the IOU. You, you, you certainly see that. There is a small example in Northern California where there is actually one road going through Central Valley and there's uh, poles on the left and poles on the right and poles on the left belong to PG&E and poles on the right belong to an irrigation district. Um, so it's not that it doesn't exist, but it, it was not a, uh, a successful business experiment where it has not been a, a, you know, a wildly successful business experiment. So I suspect you won't see more of that. Yeah, it's, um, I, well, I, I'll make a compare and contrast, which is interesting. Once again, it's a telco thing. I remember when I was, um, one of my previous lives, I uh, ran branch deployments of technology to all of the physical locations for one of Canada's biggest banks. It's one, one of my first jobs. Uh, 1,400 physical locations, five of them on permafrost. <laughs> I, I'm the only person I know who sent people to Reykjavik five times. <laughs> Somebody has to. I got to be that guy and I didn't go myself, but I remember the time that we lost a branch entirely, despite having put in redundant telco. And the the reason is because one person had the wire in and the other firm just leased space on the same wire. And so now I'm seeing, you know, the um, companies that are in now people are leasing capacity on the distribution network that's owned by the utility as we liberalize markets and as we allow people to buy green electricity and stuff like that. So there's a comparison, but it's, you still have that physical wire because we can't transmit. I mean, we can do inductive transfer of electricity. The Qi network is like 10 centimeters. Very, very short distances. Exactly. (laughs) So maybe a bit of an exaggeration saying there's no wireless power, but it's, as you say, it's, you know, I did the math once for solar-based satellites that would transmit electricity down to earth through to a rectenna grid. And it was mind-bogglingly inefficient and vastly more expensive than just putting solar panels on the ground. Mm. <laughs> you know, any, 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 any degree of energy transmission that you could actually put in there would fry birds and knock planes yeah, out of the Yeah, you don't want to get in that path, right? You no. clearly don't want to get in that path. <laughs> So yeah, there's some interesting to pull out, you know, because I spent a lot of time working with telcos as every tech person did at one point or another, you know, so it's interesting to pull out the analogies, which I hadn't really worked through before. But so that was you at PG&E and you, you kind of finished there and moved on. Yeah, I, I, you know, again, I accepted the role or I took the role knowing that this was a bridge role. This was my second, second step on a bridge role. And what I wanted to be doing was something much more entrepreneurial and much more able to change the world, but in a way that was, uh, I don't know if the, if, the, if the word is respectful of the utility or acknowledging the role that the utility plays. Maybe that's the right, the right phrase. So I went off into two separate startups. One was uh, a company that was focused on commercial building energy efficiency through mm-hmm. smart use of technology and through, op- and through AI and optimization techniques of the building management systems. Yep. And unfortunately, for a variety of reasons, uh, that business model was extremely tough and, and that, that startup did, you know, was not able to succeed. 
And then I went to uh, another startup that was really initially focused on, on demand response. And since mm-hmm. I had run the demand response programs at PG&E, it was a very uh, logical, uh, logical step. But they were focused on demand response, improving demand response through improving forecasting. So it was okay. fundamentally a software yep. company. And it was fundamentally meant to convince the utility operators or to give provide the utility operators a good sense for if they call a demand response operation, what would happen? And also, you know, how much load would actually drop to know that in advance, as opposed to what is currently done, which is a a postmortem analysis. Right. So that's that's kind of one element. And then the other element was was automatic demand response. So, so you know, working with people like Nest and and some of the other companies to actually physically control devices in people's homes to uh, to reduce load. Mm-hmm. And so I went there for a year and a half or so. Uh, wasn't the right fit for me, and uh, and I moved on. That company continued on and has recently mm-hmm. been bought by Schneider. It's a company called AutoGrid, so they have uh, they have done uh, you know they have made their contributions, and that 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 that's uh, really good. But then I went to energy storage, and now, before we go on, I just the, the demand management side. I, I, it's actually fascinating to me because I'm having spent time in IBM. What I've seen is an awful lot of legacy cruft systems that are like forty years old and green screen, just really old tech. And most utilities, their demand management, energy management systems are those legacy systems. They're very old. BC Hydro's actually still got green screen 3278 terminal emulation screens for turning off the major dryers in pulp and paper mills in 10 megawatt and 20 megawatt increments. You know, it's, it's, it's wired in through SCADA interfaces. And this is, it's not IoT, that's a different level of complexity. <laughs> It's just a math SCADA is just a very different interface structure than, you know, what most people in the internet are used to. There so are bus, is, Modbus, you know, Modbus infrastructure, interconnections, serial uh, data rates. Absolutely. Oh I mean, this is, this is not, uh, this is a far cry from IOT. Yeah. What I projected though, um, and I, I built a model around um, projection of demand management versus vehicle to home versus vehicle to grid for electric vehicles for charging through, I think, 2050 or 2060. Because I'm stupidly arrogant. I actually project out decades into the future to try to figure out what's going on. I saw um, that, you know, 2060. You know, to try and say, here's a vision to allow us to trigger and have good conversations. But the demand management side for vehicles, because there's such a big load for electric cars when they come on, each one's an oven's worth of draw, and they tend to get plugged in in similar times, I, I, I projected a smart charging for buildings like the one I'm living in, getting the electric vehicle charging put in for 233 units. That would just balance the load over the course of the night automatically without algorithmically to do a demand automat- automated demand management, but also that those vendors um, like EVgo and others who have huge charging networks would offer demand management interfaces to utilities in their districts. And turn down vehicle charging to provide significant demand le- uh, lessening in peak periods for as a business value proposition, as a secondary revenue stream for those businesses. I haven't seen that in operation yet, so I'm looking forward to seeing that occur. But That's really interesting because I, I took a look at this back in 2009 as well. And what we did at that time was we, we were trying to answer the question, uh, it, how bad is this going to be for the utility? What, what are the impacts for the utility? 
And so the analysis we did was we looked at the uh, Prius registrations in Northern California. And what we wanted to see or understand, so the penetration rate of, 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 of hybrids is, is an interesting number, but you know, given that electricity is a very local business, given that di- distribution networks tend to have pain points, what you really need to know is what is the concentration, the geographic concentration. Yeah. And what we discovered was that the penetration of, of uh, Priuses really cluster around, around neighborhoods. You know, no surprise, mm-hmm. Berkeley, Palo Alto. Uh, Marin County, right? So really clustered around around particular neighborhoods and even around you know certain city blocks, and and so when you look at it that way and you and then you layer on the distribution network, you can see that you have a problem. That, that you, and it happens pretty quickly. So it's not like this is when you look at the law of averages and and and, and average it all out, you don't think you have a problem for for a couple of years, right? But when you look at how it actually rolls out you realize that you will have a problem sooner than, than you think. And so we, we did have this vision of a smart garage where you could time, you, you know, people plug in right when they get home yep. and then you, you could, and, and they have, you know, and you have a 10 to 12 hour window before they want to use the car again. And you yep. can manage that charge at any point in that time so that you don't, you don't uh, put undue pressure on the grid. I agree with you. I haven't really seen, you know, PG&E does have a EV uh, plan that they, that they filed and, and got approval for from the CPUC. I did not follow it, but, but I think there are some elements of that. I don't, but I don't, I don't think we've seen anything widespread from any utility yet. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a, an emerging space. I mean, I live in, the, in Vancouver and Vancouver and British Columbia have more Teslas per capita than any other jurisdiction in the world for a variety of historical reasons. I live in a pocket of the future, which is wonderful. And I see Tesla's typically two to five in any given block as I'm walking along. They're just all over the place. But you know, it used to be Tesla's in suburbs. One guy would get a Tesla and then the woman next door would go, that's a really nice car and get a Tesla. And all of a sudden this cul-de-sac in Northern Toronto, greater Toronto area would have like five Teslas. And all of a sudden they'd be having power problems. Mm-hmm. It just exactly as you say, it tends to be these little clusters. So, um, so that was the next thing. I just wanted to touch on that demand management because demand management and how we TiVo energy becomes very important for storage. So drawing out that there's other solutions there. Like, and uh, the way, what I posit though, is that vehicle to grid technologies probably won't be particularly useful for a long time, you know, because uh, it's, um, if you know uh, Innovators Dilemma, do you, have you read Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow? Or yes. Behavioral Economics Prospect Theory? Yeah. People, people worry about loss much more than they value potential gain is yep. prospect theory. You know, and that's what he won his Nobel Prize on um, with Tversky. And um, you know, what that says is from a vehicle-to-grid perspective that fits into this teetling of energy perspective, people will worry much more about losing their range and they'll expect a much higher price than a utility is going to be interested in paying for the kilowatt hours in their batteries. You know, so that's kind of statement one. Statement two is vehicle to home works when you've got detached homes, but it doesn't really work. Yeah. <laughs> you've got multi-unit residences. And as I've had conversations with people, I pointed out that even 20% of people in American sprawling, sprawling suburbs live in multi-unit residences. Never mind the rental places, which are, you know, yet another layer of challenge there. So the 
vehicle to grid I see as the demand management option, turn down charging with these interfaces and emerging in a virtualized demand network. But then we get into the actual real storage. You know, I don't, I don't see vehicle, the 20 terawatt hours of vehicle batteries in the United States being useful to pull energy back from. Well, let me tell you, so well, one of the things I really liked about storage, because I was more firmly on the demand management side with my yep. experience at PG&E and whatnot. And I guess one of the things that I really liked about storage is that, is that there is a fundamental hurdle that, that the utility needs to get over. And that hurdle is that demand management counts on a counterfactual, right? It's not tangible. It's a counterfactual, meaning that you think where you predict that load is going to be here at this level. Yep. And with through demand management, it's going to naturally be at eight instead of 10. And so therefore you've saved two, but it's very intangible, right? It's not like a, a switch or a dial on a, on a, on a uh, uh, combined cycle gas turbine, where if you want to reduce, if you want to reduce load by two megawatts, you turn the dial to the left and reduce it by two megawatts and you see the output and you see that you've reduced it by two. And so in some respects, you know, I, I, I've had people on the, on the procurement side, energy procurement side inside a utility tell me, well, you know, if you don't make good on your demand response projections, I, you know, too bad for you, but I lose my job. So it, it's that asymmetric risk. Yep. Right. And so what I like about storage is that storage is that dial. Yep. Storage represents certainty on that dial. So the adoption rate, the willingness to take it into account as a true resource in that control room is a lot higher. Interesting. Whereas I think of demand management as much more commonly baked into utilities, but without your direct experience with utilities trying to sell it and trying to help them adopt it. Huh. Okay. I think that one probably needs a little teasing apart. So let's talk about, so are you, are you now at the point where you're doing storage or at the point in your progression where you're into Vartzilla or are we still? I'm now at the point. No, I'm now at the point where I'm, I enter a startup called Greensmith Energy. Okay. And um, I think I was the 12th employee or something very low count. And Greensmith had been founded in 2009 their initial goal was to build the uh, energy management system to control storage broadly and widely. And by 2014, when I had joined, it became clear that, you know, that they needed to build a system to control because otherwise it was, it was just too, you know, people were not interested in buying just the controls yet. Uh, and that is, a, that is a yet. And so we found ourselves in the systems integration business. Uh, on the software side, we tried to be as technology neutral as possible. So by the time 2015 or 16 rolled around, we, we found ourselves compatible with 12 different batteries and, uh, or 16 different batteries and 12 different uh, inverters so that we could kind of mix and match and, and control other people's equipment in addition to our own and what we had selected, right? Yep. In 2016, I was at a trade show in Dusseldorf, Germany, and I was approached by some folks from Finnish company called Vertzilla. And uh, I, I was wondering how, you know, the San Francisco Bay Area guy who doesn't live in any of the cities that Vartzilla operates has uh, offices in, in the United States ends up being headhunted by Vartzilla. This is a, so you're in Dusseldorf, 
this this person from Varzilla approaches you. Yes, this person, uh, Risto Paldanius, who was given the assignment to figure out Varzilla's strategy with storage, that they saw storage coming up and they wondered whether or not it threatened their business. Mm-hmm. And they needed a strategy. They wanted a strategy to proactively deal with it. So remember, this is 2016. They were quite early in their thinking. Yep. Okay. Well, let's briefly talk about Varzilla because I was surprised. I, I think of Varzilla because I spent time in the marine space projecting marine megatons of shipping through 2100 and hence which one subsections can electrify. And I'm getting to the point where I've looked at ammonia and methanol and biofuels. And I'm getting to the point where I'm going to have a projection of market demand and millions of tons of fuel for the appropriate fuels that I think will replace that. Which means that I know Fartzilla as a marine shipping company. <laughs> so when, you know, Shalika reached out and said, hey, do you want to talk to Andy Tang who deals with energy storage? I went, what? And then I'm like, oh, so you, it, it, I, have a, I have a projection. I, I did some Googling in preparation for this. And I started looking at where Vartzilla has energy generation units and contracts. And I realized they're all almost all coastal countries. And I have this vision that these massive ships rolled in and got docked and ended up providing electricity to shore and at some point people just ripped the motor out of these rusting hulks and put it on shore and use it to generate electricity on shore and then eventually Varzilla said hey this is actually an entire market that we could take advantage of do you have any sense of whether my reverse engineering of the history of Varzilla becoming an energy generation company makes any sense at all your narrative makes a lot of sense and it's close but not quite Okay, um, perfect. So Vertzel, a 180-year-old company, been through multiple technology changes, you know, from a mm-hmm. pulp and paper business to a glass business to, you know, to an energy, to a engines business, reciprocating engines business. You are right that the marine business predated and they were manufacturing these great reciprocating engines. Reciprocating engine is just a fancy name for the same type of engine that goes in your car, uh, your, your fossil-fueled car, but a lot <laughs> bigger the the cylinder head you know if you think of a spark plug fitting into a cylinder head this in a car the cylinder head on some of our engines might be might be a foot or more wide right Mm -hmm. so but a lot bigger Um, but it's still it's still a v block we have a v20 we have a you know v18 and someone 30 years ago had the idea that said hey so i think this was more vertilla driven as opposed to customer driven but someone thought you know we could take these and put them in a building and generate power and mm-hmm. start an energy business. And so we did that about 30 years ago. And we have grown to about, you know, you think of Artsil as, as a marine company, but half the revenues come from the energy business. I, I was surprised when I was going through press releases for this year. It's like the majority of them are not marine. You guys are spending a lot more time and energy in the energy space than in the marine space, which, as I say, surprised me. So it's just, yeah, I mean, in all fairness, you know, we have, we have two good sides to our business. There's a little bit of counter cyclicality on the two sides of the business, right? Marine given COVID-19 and given, uh, you know, given COVID-19 has been, has been challenged, right? But energy given COVID-19 has actually kind of gone into a little bit of, of a turbo, turbo drive. Well, yeah, especially right now, this year is not even necessarily COVID-19. 
Uh, I, I made a projection in uh, early 2020 that natural gas prices would you know, stop being the flat, cheap commodity and A, increase above the price of inflation and B, become much more volatile again. And that was because of two major factors, the Saudi Arabia and Russian uh, oil price war aimed at high priced, high cost producers like shale oil and other unconventional oils like Alberta's oil sands. Mm-hmm. And a lot of natural gas comes out of shale oil. And so as we start seeing these operations diminish, as we start seeing hydrofracturing stop in many places because it's an un- a more expensive con- unconventional oil extraction technique, the natural gas supplies would yeah. diminish as well. Yeah. And so it was easy to say, and I, I wasn't alone in this, I wasn't like amazing, I didn't make millions of dollars off of this observation. McKinsey made this observation, others made this observation as well. So, and that came really true last fall and winter. Natural gas prices just went boom. And then mm-hmm. the Russian invasion of Ukraine and natural gas prices went boom again to the point where they're multiples of what they were last summer on a you know MMBTU basis. And so I can see you know your energy business right now with marine shipping being significantly depressed. And I'll, I'll, I'll flip you at the end of uh, when we get off this call, flip you my projection of marine shipping because 40% of deep sea shipping is fossil fuels. You know, so it's, it's not a growth market. <laughs> Container shipping will increase. Overall shipping will decrease, you know, interestingly enough. And so that does make a tremendous amount of sense. COVID definitely depressed shipping, but energy, there's this transformation that's been turbocharged by the various things that have gone on in energy over the past few years. Very interesting. Okay, that, that would also explain why, you know, maybe five years from now, it'll be reversed again in terms of, of you know, energy in the businesses. But Absolutely. So you've, you've entered Vartzilla. You got headhunted by the gentleman you talked about. And so what have you been doing in Vartzilla? Well, so actually what happened there was I wasn't headhunted. Our company, the company I was working for at the time, Greensmith, we entered into a strategic collaboration where they were feeding us leads. And we would, have, we would then go and jointly propose energy storage projects to, to those leads. Uh, Vartzilla was trying to capitalize on the fact that they do have salespeople across the globe. As, as you mentioned, yep. we, we do have power plants in over 170 countries wow. uh, across the globe. Yeah, it's, it's truly That's daunting. amazing penetration. I think there's something like 193 or 194 countries recognized by the UN. And uh, we have five, I think it was last time, but you know, it's like comes and goes. So yeah, yeah and, and we're, we're, we're in 170. Wow. Right. And so... The strategic collaboration began. We started uh, working on some on some bids together uh, in places like Australia and and, and some other. Uh, they typically weren't the ones in the United States. That was typically left to the old legacy Greensmith. They were typically bringing us into new markets. Right. And then they came back six months later and said, "We would like to acquire you." And, and so, oh. as they say, the rest is the rest is uh, history. We were acquired July second. 2017. So we're coming up on our five-year anniversary. I, I, I did actually have a question as to whether the quantum quantum space, what it was the name of the uh, quantum quantum it was the Greensmith storage uh, management asset or not? It was not. What was the Greensmith uh, storage management asset was something called, well, it was called the max or the grid solve max. Mm-hmm. So our, our suite of solutions are called GridSolve. So that's GridSolve Quantum and GridSolve Max. GridSolve Max was like, uh, was like the previous generation of what we all did in the industry, which was 
uh, we allowed the factory to become the field and we built these containers. We modified these containers, shipped them to site, bought the batteries, had the batteries shipped to site and then manually installed the batteries at site. Okay. And there were a number of reasons why we had done this. There were some issues about safety of the batteries, calendar life degradation of the batteries, and, and, and a variety of other reasons. But I would say beginning in 2020, and really I will be beginning in 2019, actually, before COVID, uh, and I, I will begrudgingly admit that uh, you know Tesla really opened my eyes uh, with just what I think is a, is a fantastic product with the power pack, the power wall, the power pack, the whole the whole line of it yeah. and, and really they're, showed their mega pack is like a container. It's a container sized battery. Yeah. And it really showed the industry what, you know, to really push through some of these conservative engineering views on what is or is not possible. And so we actually, I actually, so I, I took over in, in January of 2019 mm-hmm. and my first action as the, as the VP of the business line, the global business mm-hmm. line. My first action was to really accelerate this project that I had started in my previous role at the same company, uh, which was called, uh, we called it Project Mavericks after the big wave in California, but you know, it was, it was something revolutionary and, and, and that we needed to do to change. Uh, and it was quantum. It was, a, it was a, a Snakeworks development effort at quantum to develop quantum. And so with full support of our parent company, you know, we, we developed that and brought it to market. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks. Walk, 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 walk,